Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We are embarking today on a new sermon series in the book of Philippians, which is in the New Testament. It's likely going to take us through the fall and maybe a little bit into the new year to complete it. Our main item of business today is to read through the whole book together. It's short enough that we can do that, and it's fitting that we do it because of the nature of the type of literature that it is and how that would have originally been used and experienced by the people on the ground. So that's the main item of business, but I want to say a few things before we do that about the type of literature that Philippians is. The Bible is made up of different types of literature, and we've been in the book of Acts for months, and that is a narrative history, and this is something different. I grew up being taught a lot of good gospel truth, but not a lot of good context for how to, what to do, with, how to make sense of that truth, what different parts of Scripture, how, to, how it develops and how it's put together and proceeds from beginning to end nor how the context of, of the, that those, the, the, the original audience and intention. And so in my own study and further growth and knowledge of God's word, I try to focus on those things. And at the beginning of a new series, when we have a different type or part of God's word, I'm going to spend some time here at the beginning just kind of opening up this type of literature because that's important to understanding how to interpret it how to make use of it, how to appreciate it for what it is. Philippians is a letter. Anybody old enough to remember what those are? <laughs> Letters are still somewhat in use in our culture, but they were especially important in the ancient world, in a time before cell phones and texting and emails, digital communication. Letters were all the more important. We normally reserve them today for things like for formal matters, like legal things and bills. You might get an occasional birthday card in the mail, but not very many of us receive personal letters. Maybe one a year, if that. It's not very common anymore. But letters in older times were very important. They've... Uh, Letters seem to be dying out, but they go back a, a long time. The earliest letter I think that we have in, in our possession is from the 1300s BC from Egypt. One of the queens of Egypt sent a letter, and we have that still in possession. And we can know about how she thought, how she behaved in court, and how she did her work from, this, from these letters that we have of hers. It's pretty interesting. But it wasn't until the centuries surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ that letters became something that people generally sent to one another, the regular people used. Okay? Before that, as far as we can tell, through archaeology and history, that letters were something kings and dignitaries used to communicate between one another, but wasn't so common, probably because of the lack of literacy and the expense and difficulty of getting these things to one another. But technology was increasing, systems were improving in the Roman Empire, in the, Empire, in the Middle Period especially, and literacy in the Roman uh, Empire was increasing. Now, it never got real high. 20% is, is what scholars estimate maximum literacy rates in Rome. Lower still in Greek parts of the world. But it was increasing and people started to use letters as, a, as another way of communicating with one another. Now, that's no small thing, actually, in the history of salvation and the formation of our faith. We sing a song called The Fullness of Time that's based on a phrase that Paul uses in one of his letters um, from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and he says that when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son. Now that, there was a lot wrapped up in that phrase, the fullness of the time. 
But one of the things wrapped up in it is this, that God chose a spe- the specific moment in history, a time of fullness and ripeness, uh, together with all of the, what would I say, all of the features of that moment, technologically and culturally, all the features of that moment. And one of the amazing features of that moment was this, the advent of letter writing. And why is that significant? Well, it's significant because there's 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of them are letters. That's pretty new and unique to the New Testament. And it's the, it's the bulk and the core of the way God has revealed his mind, opened up his mind to his church. is through personal letters. And that's the bulk of what we have to understand the gospel and the nature of Christian life is through this form of literature, the letter. So it's been very important and significant in the development of the formation of the scriptures, of the church, and how we understand faith. The Apostle Apostle Paul especially used this form of communication in his pastoral work. He personally wrote 13 of the 21 letters in the New Testament. So half the New Testament is Paul's, and, and in fact, all of the writings we have of Paul are personal letters. So the personal letter as a vehicle for communicating and forming spiritual, theological, gospel truth in early Christian communities was one of the primary means that God appointed for opening up his mind to his church and building her up in faith and hope of the gospel of Jesus. And it's a very fitting form. And that's because of the nature. It's personal. It's intimate. And that is, the, that is important to God from the very beginning of the church that his, he wants his people to be relating closely together in fellowship and love and harmony. And so it's not accidental that he used and made use of and inspired his, the authors of his scriptures to use this form of communication because it furthers, enhances, and establishes that nature of fellowship, intimacy, and life together. So Paul, this is a letter, and it's a letter of Paul. He's not the only author of letters in, that we have in the scripture, but he's, he wrote the bulk of them. Some of Paul's letters were written to individuals. He wrote two letters to Timothy, his protege. He wrote a letter to Titus. And he wrote a very interesting short letter to a man named Philemon. But the majority of Paul's letters were written to churches or groupings of churches in a city or region. And very interestingly, they were intended to be heard, read aloud in church. That was, their, that was their original purpose and context. Paul would write a letter to the church and he would expect it to be read aloud in the congregation, likely in a worship service. We have a couple of indications of this in his letters itself. In Colossians, the fourth chapter, his letter to the Colossians, he says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So not only did they read it aloud, but they were expected to, to change out, swap out letters that Paul had sent them because they were understood to be, they're very personal. Their names are named. Situations in the church were, were addressed very pointedly at times. They're very personal. But Paul also expected them explicitly in the letters, we know this, to swap them back and forth because he he knew that they were universally applicable and helpful. So he says, when this letter is read among you that I've just sent you, Colossians, have it also read by the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So that's one of the letters we don't have of Paul in in the scriptures, but we know of because he mentions it there. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says in that letter, I adjure you by the Lord. That's a pretty strong um, admonishment. I adjure you by the Lord. Have this letter read to all the brethren in the regions of Macedonia, I think would be the assumption there. 
Now, so Paul wrote these 13 letters that we have preserved for us by the Lord in the Scriptures. Peter recognizes his knowledge of of Paul's letters in one of his letters, and he acknowledges that they're a little difficult to understand at times, but he also says they're Scripture. I don't have that here, but if you can look it up in his, I think his first letter to the, to, to, uh, of the first letter of Peter, he says, he says, people twist Paul's words just like they do the rest of Scripture. So they were understood to be not only universally applicable, but authoritative and part of God's word. And very interesting. And read aloud in the church, which is how we're going to try to experience it here at the beginning for starters today. Now, Paul's letters to the churches are all very different from each other. Probably the most similar ones are Ephesians and Colossians. But even they have differences, pretty significant differences. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, that was a church that he had not visited and had not been responsible for planting, but he had a very keen interest in helping form and shape their understanding of, of Christian belief and faith as he understood and had insight into the mystery of the gospel. And so what he did, as he was thinking about them, is he wrote out his theology, his understanding of the gospel beginning to end, and sent them like a doctrinal treatise, masterful and incredible. And we've worked through that in the, in, the, in the last few years under Pastor Bailey's ministry here, that letter to the Romans. But what we did was he took, he had not, he, they had not heard his teaching, so he... He wrote down his teaching, what he taught everywhere, and he sent it off to them to help form and shape their understanding of the gospel. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, which is in Greece, he knew that church very well. He had, he had, he had helped establish it, and he had visited there, and so he knew them inside and out, and he knew what was going on through reports and rumors that were coming to him, and he wrote to correct bad practices that had settled into that church and a party spirit divisiveness that was settling into that church and all their corruptions. He wrote to address them uh, and to take them to task for those things and to correct them. When he wrote to the Galatians, the churches in the region of Galatia, which is one of the first places he visited and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ and formed churches on his first missionary journey, he uh, the Judaizers had gone up there in, in his, the wake of Paul's first visit and had been oppressing the believers there and introducing false teachings about the nature of the gospel and the nature of, of the acceptance that Jesus had of uh, Gentiles as Gentiles and their standing in the church and on what grounds they could count themselves believers. These people were teaching them that they had that Jesus is great, the gospel is good, we believe that, but you have to practice also the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. And Paul saw this for the threat that it was. And he is hammering tongs, tooth and nail, at, the, at fever pitch, writing to the Galatians to try to counteract the influence of false teachers in the church. Very different purposes and needs that he's addressing in all these letters. What about Philippians stands out? Well, Philippians, um, if all of the letters could be said to be different from each other, Philippians is differenter still, okay? It really does stand out as pretty unique. Somewhat related to 1 Thessalonians. They have some of the same kind of character. Philippians is, is pretty unique among Paul's letters. It's, I think, best understood to be a letter of friendship. A letter of friendship. Usually in his letters, Paul is working to lay theological foundations or arguing intensely against errors in doctrine or life. And both of those purposes, when he's um, up to those ends in his letters, bring about certain characteristics in Paul's manner of speech. They bring, there's a heavy use of theological terms, specialized theological language, and a lot of the use of words like for and therefore. That's when you know Paul's engaged in heavy argumentation and trying to 
build line by line and, be, and try to move people in their understanding and to help them understand the truth. That's when Paul's in argument mode. We don't see very much of that in the book of Philippians at all. A little bit, but not much. So Paul's in some other mode in his purpose and the way he's communicating to this particular church in Philippi. Philippians is not polemical. I don't really know what that word means, but it's fancy. But I think it means it's like argumentative, um, um, like aggressive. (laughs) It's not like taking some false idea to task. He does that in other letters. Other letters are more polemical. Nor is he like trying to write a theological treatise. He does that in other letters or other large portions of letters. Philippians is not so much that. That is, that is not to say that theology is absent. Paul cannot open his mouth or pick up his pen without expressing his theology everywhere. It's getting all over everybody. And it's amazing. Paul has this wonderful insight. He lives in the knowledge and the meditation of God, of Jesus Christ, of what he's doing in the world, and that comes out of all his pores. And it certainly comes out in Philippians. But he's not in teaching mode. He's in some other mode as he writes to the Philippians. Philippians is a letter of friendship. He's in relational friendship mode when he writes to them. It's not a letter about friendship. That would be nice. It'd be nice to have a letter about friendship. It's in the ins and outs of it. But it is a letter of friendship that expresses. And we, so we, in, we have this window. As we work our way through Philippians, we have this window into what it can, what, what, how people can relate to one another in Jesus Christ. How close they can be. How much affection and love they can have for one another and trust and, and mutuality and the beauty of it. And we get a window into the things that promote that. So it's a letter of friendship. Very nearly the only one of its kind in all the scriptures. Although the first letter of the Thessalonians has some similarities. A key indicator that Paul is in a different mode in this letter comes at the very beginning when he simply says, Paul, a servant. Now normally he says, Paul, servant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not by the will of man, but by God himself. <laughs> so he, but he doesn't feel the need to remind this group of his rank or office or authority. Now he's not taking it off. He still has a lot of authoritative, fatherly things to say to them. But he doesn't feel the need with this group to remind them. He's not... He doesn't have to flex his muscles. He feels safe, accepted, trusted. They have a bond and an understanding. And and that's been long-lasting. That is kind of rare. Paul doesn't have this kind of relationship with all the churches that he's founded. This one is special. And it seems like maybe he has a similar bond with the churches in Thessalonica just down the road. Because when he writes to them, he also does not feel the need to remind them of his office. But that, those are the only real places in his letters where that's um, true. Now, friendship in the ancient world, in this time of Greek and Roman history, was a very important thing. It got a lot of attention by the uh, philosophers of the day. A lot of ink spilled about this idea of friendship. And as letter writing came more and more into use in everyday life, this cultural value on friendship found a new means of expression. So, very interestingly, there's manuals produced by orators and specialists in the day, in Roman and Greek society, about how to write letters And the letter of friendship was a recognized form 
And it had its own conventions and patterns. And they even, even these manuals, they give little snippets or descriptions of the t- how, the, how a letter should go and how it should sound. And when you read those, it's like, that sounds a lot like Philippians. That's got the same kind of like tone and phrase- phraseology and even this, a lot of the same ideas as in Philippians. So educated people would have been schooled in how to write certain different types of letters. And it's clear that Paul knew about such things because that's on display here in Philippians. And when there's been comparative analyses done of family letters or intimate letters from that time period between people and friends, and what you see is the essential elements and characteristics of all those letters, Philippians ticks all the boxes. It is a letter of friendship. Very typical of other letters of friendship in that time, except that with the Apostle Paul, you get something never done before. You get this, this, this form. Paul's been to writing class 101. He knows about forms and how to, how to write your five-paragraph essay and all of that stuff. He knows his forms. He's been to school. But he takes that form. He's not bound by it. He's, he's, he's working within it, but he's not bound by it. And what he does is he takes this, expresses friendship to these people in a way that the world has never seen. Because in Paul's understanding of what friendship is, is that there's three people in it. There's you, and there's me, and there's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that binds us together as friends is Jesus himself. He is the core, he's the ground, he's the aim, he's the meaning, he's the pursuit, he's, he's the essence of what we are together. We are in him together. We support his cause and work towards the same goal of pleasing him. Our ambition is to be with him. He is everything. And this is what we see in the letters of the Philippians. Jesus is central. This is a letter that uses the word gospel more than any other of Paul's writings. And interesting? Also, the word joy and its related words like rejoicing and that sort of thing appear more than in any other of his writings. And, and that's because the gospel makes for a lot of joyful things, but it makes it's one of the great joys that it intends is the joy of true and satisfying friendship through a shared identity in Jesus and the mutual goal of being with him. We've called this series Reaching Forward because this is clearly the aim that Paul has central to his heart and life as he's writing this letter. The goal is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to serve him until faithfully more and more each day until we get there. And the joy of doing that and the joy of sharing that pursuit with one another is tremendous. And that just comes out over and over again in this letter to the Philippians. Friendship has fallen on hard times. I don't know if you're aware of this. Culturally, people are lonely. We have this feeling that we should be relating more closely and more intimately, more easily, more naturally with each other and we don't know the first thing about how to go about doing it. The pastors have been talking about this for a couple of years. We did a men's retreat upon this theme, friendship. It's in the air. People are hungry for this thing called friendship, which the Greeks and the Romans valued. Maybe we're going to start valuing it again as a society. I don't know. But Paul has a lot to teach us about the true nature of friendship as we work through this letter together. Lord willing, we'll, we're along for the ride. We have, a, we have a, a front row seat to how Paul lives with his friends, how he relates to them, how he speaks to them, how he loves them, and how they love him. Paul did have a unique relationship to this Philippian church. Not just every church gave Paul the same joy and encouragement that these folks did. 
And you'll recall, if you've been along through our series of Acts, that this relationship got started on, through some pretty remarkable occurrences. Directed, Paul was directed there by the Spirit of God. He didn't know where he was headed. This was not on his itinerary, and God led him there to Philippi. So when he started out, he was going with Silas after having separated, sadly, with Barnabas, his longtime companion and ally. So he's with a new traveling companion, Silas. They set out to, from Jerusalem, or from, I think it was Antioch, to the region of Galatia, where he had previously been. He wanted to visit there. There he and Silas picked up a young promising man named Timothy, who he conscripted into service and on, to join him on mission. And from there they set off westward through Turkey, which was then called um, Asia, Asia, Asia Minor. And they wanted to go down to the southwest into Asia, where Ephesus was. But the Holy Spirit expressly forbid them at that time from going there. They also found that their way to the north, to Bithynia, was likewise blocked. Where were they headed? In the night, God sent Paul a vision. A Macedonian man appealing to Paul, Paul, come over here and help us. Paul told the rest of his team about what the vision had contained, and they determined that this was a message from the Lord. This is the Lord's will, that they should get on board a ship and cross over the Aegean Sea into Europe, to Macedonia, northern Greece. And the first stop was Philippi. They land there. They take their bearings. They find that there's no synagogue in Philippi. They can't, Paul's normal habit is to start first with his people, the Jews, and they, there's, they can't be found. So they go down to the river, and they find a group of, of proselytes, wannabe Jews, Gentiles who are pursuing God through um, faith in the Old Testament scriptures and the belief in Yahweh. And they were together praying down at the river. And Paul, that's where Paul meets his first, and, and, and God blesses him with his first fruit in Europe. The conversion of this woman, Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics and her household. That's the first fruit that Paul experiences in Europe at Philippi. He continues to minister over the coming days and weeks. We don't know how long of a period that is, but he stayed there. He's, and he, there's this demon-possessed slave girl who is a diviner, and she's annoying Paul because she follows them around crying out, these are the servants of the Most High God. And he gets annoyed, and he exercises the demon out of this young girl, his second fruit in Europe, the slave girl. And that lands him in trouble because the owners of this girl were receiving a lot of profit from her powers, but now they were gone. And that lands Paul in jail, which brings him to his third um, convert, the jailer and his household, because the jailer, through God's signs of God's power, comes to know the Lord through Paul's ministry at this time. That's the core, the nucleus of this church that Paul's writing to. Those, those are the people. And surely there's been more fruit, more additions there, because when, in, as we'll see next week in the address, Paul says, with the, with the deacons and the elders of the church, too. He's, taught, he's writing not just to the people generally, but he explicitly mentions other pastors and elders. So they've grown. They have officers. But this is who these people were. And through these extraordinary things that God did amongst them, they've just had this incredible bond that even we see in the, in the letter to the Philippians that from the time Paul left there, even immediately after, they kept sending him gifts and support. They've been supporting him all along any way they could. They were not a rich church, but they were the only church that Paul allowed the honor of partnering with him financially in the support of his work. When Paul had heavy lifting to do with people pastorally, he didn't let them pay him. He didn't want them having anything they could hold over his head or any accusation they could make against him as being about the money. 
He was perfectly willing to support himself by tent making as, as needed. If it meant having more opportunities and a better position with, in relationally with the people he was having to do some tough work with. The Philippians, though, just gave him joy. And he had the freedom of letting them help him. And the joy of receiving their love and gifts and help and support in his ministry. Where was Paul when he wrote the letter? At the end of Acts, that we found Paul under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar. And that's when he penned this letter to the Philippians. He wrote several letters during this time. I think I've got them written down here somewhere, if I can find them. Maybe I won't be able to. Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. So he was there under house arrest for two years. We think we know that these four letters originate from those, that period in his life. Um, and Philippians was probably the first one that got written. And it's co-written by his protege, Timothy, who's mentioned in the opening address. Paul and Timothy, it says. But this was a case, it's, it's not like he was just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and then they were on his mind and he decided to pen a letter. The letter was occasioned by, first, by the Philippians themselves. They somehow heard that Paul was now in Rome and awaiting trial and nobody knew the outcome of what that was going to be. And so they took the initiative and they sent money like they had done before and they sent one of their best men, to be an encouragement, to help and be of service to Paul in any way they could, Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus came and arrived in Rome, and Paul, I'm sure Paul was overjoyed to see him, and received their gift with joy, and sat down, and he wrote the most glorious letter of thanks that has ever been conceived. He saves the thanks and acknowledgement for the gift to the very end of the letter, not because it's an afterthought, but because he wanted that to ring and resonate. Remember, they're hearing this. And he saved that for the last thing that they would hear and remember. But man, did he have a lot else of glorious and wonderful things to say, both about his heart for them, about the, the, the truth and the glory of the gospel, and the things that promote Christian love and fellowship in the church. And so what we're going to do now is we are going to read this letter, or listen to it read, imagining that we are the Philippians. We're the Philippian church, okay? The man who introduced us to Jesus Christ is imprisoned in Rome. We've come to know. And we have, we have given up, taken up a collection and put together a good, loving gift for Paul to help him. And we've sent that to him with one of our best men, Epaphroditus, all the way to Rome. And it's been a long time. We haven't heard what's going on. But we then hear that Epaphroditus got sick and we're worried about him. And then suddenly Epaphroditus shows up and he's got a letter from our beloved Paul. And somebody that we gather for worship and somebody, maybe Epaphroditus himself, stands up and opens the letter and reads it aloud to us. And we're hanging on every word to know how Paul is doing, how he's thinking about it, what he thinks about us. And here we go. I'm going to take a drink of water, because last time I did this, and I should have had a drink of water, and I regretted it not doing that afterwards. So you'll thank me. And when we're done, I would like Mike Tiberi to come up and lead us in a prayer of God's blessing upon this study of this part of his word. Okay, Mike? Right? I have a microphone for you. Okay. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. 
Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, 
regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, you, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is faith in Christ, righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, 
that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Mike, would you come and lead us in a word of prayer? Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your perfect and holy word. We thank you for making it a living living and active word, that even though the Apostle Paul wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago to the Philippian church, that yet it still is active. And that by your Holy Spirit, you use your word to pierce to the deepest recesses of our heart. And so we want to ask you, O God, that as we go through this book of Philippians as a church, that that you would pierce to the deepest parts of our hearts and that you would teach us to love, to love you and to love one another, not as the world loves, but as you love. And we ask that you would give us peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would teach us what true joy is and to not be tossed to and fro by our circumstances or the sufferings that we face, but to be able to rejoice even in suffering because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would teach us that joy through the book of Philippians. Now we do want to ask that you would fill Pastor Jody with wisdom and give him grace as he studies and teaches the word of God to us along with the other pastors. And we ask, oh God, that you would Give us as a congregation ears to hear and hearts ready and willing to obey and believe all that is written in your word. We ask that as we go through this letter of Philippians that you would make it dear to us and that we would find your word more precious, more valuable than any money, than any food, that we would truly be able to say that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now we ask that as we go forward in this next months through this book, help us to rejoice and to give glory to you, O Father, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> 